All right, uh, we're continuing in the Westminster Confession, and last week we only did the first paragraph of chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator. Well, tonight we're only going to do paragraph 2, because it's so, well, it, honestly, it's fair. I was reflecting on this. If you look at the first three councils of the early church, first four, really, they were all doing, having to do with the person and work of, of Christ. Those were the issues that had to be settled. The Council of Nicaea dealt with the Arian crisis. And then you get Ephesus and Chalcedon in the 5th century, and that's going to bear on their material tonight. And it's not by chance that the first centuries of theological controversy, by the way, the church was teaching these things all along, but they had to learn how to defend them and how to to put it right. That was was the first uh, two centuries of the post-persecution church age, and so it's no surprise that we'll spend some time on it tonight. This paragraph 2 of chapter 8 is a very important one. Let me read it. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, and yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Now, every word there is carefully chosen. And we're going to look at it under three headings, the first of which is the deity of Christ. Very clearly, the Son of God is the second person in the Trinity, very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. And so the deity of the Son of God is the the first thing being emphasized. And of course, that was, of course, the work of the Council of Nicaea, and actually the second council of of Constantinople in 381, 325 to 381. Often you had the you had a, a council to state the truth, then you had to have another one two generations later to nail it in. And that was the, the fourth century of the church doing that. Uh, he is God of these. These are familiar words. By the way, people, I suppose people go, wow, your church does a Nicene Creed. Isn't that odd? Actually, it's odd not to. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like the, it's, it's of, of the confessional heritage of the Christian church at the, the ground four. It's very interesting. You know, the, the age of persecution ends about 312. 325, they have a, conf- a council. Because we've got to get, we've got to get this straight. And we've got to defend, if, we, if, if Jesus is not very God of very God, we've got another religion going on. And so that language, I actually love it when we do the Nicene Creed, because if you randomly picked, I often think this way, if you randomly picked Christians out of different centuries of the church, what would they think if they came to Second Presbyterian Church? Well, there'd be some differences, but I think they would say, ah, this is the, this is the church. This is Christianity. And this language is important. Very God of God, God, light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Well, the Westminster Confession, of course, is going to mirror that language in very substantial ways. Now, what we mean when we say that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is very an eternal God, what we mean is 
Everything that the Father possesses that makes him God is equally true of the Son. Now, it is true that in the Scripture and in theology, the Father is the representative person of the Godhead. So often, God is referring to the Father. And often, if you just say God, it's the Father that's meant, and with him, the whole Trinity. But but one thing we need to rid ourselves of any notion of Jesus in any way being less in anything that is divinity and deity than God the Father. Whatever, everything and whatever the Father possesses that makes him God, the Son equally possesses. Um, the, uh, you know, there's, in the Trinitarian formula, there's really three things, not two, that are essential. There is one God in three persons, but the third thing is, and they are co-equal in every respect. And that, that third one is usually, and I'll talk about we're having some problems right now in our theology and evangelicalism, that third one is where the trouble comes in. Now, one thing this means is the eternal sonship of the second person of the Godhead. Um, Jesus not only is eternal God, but he has eternally been the Son, and the Father has eternally been the Father. You will run across evangelical theologians now and again who deny the eternal sonship of Christ. Uh, John MacArthur, who we greatly admire, for many years denied the, in fact, his, his Hebrews commentary denied the, first, when I first read that, I was like, whoa. That's like, and he actually, once he thought it through, he went and revised it. That's what I love about him. I was wrong. I recant it. I'm going to republish that book. Because if, if, if you, theologically, you're really not supposed to call him Jesus prior to the incarnation, but I can't help it. So, uh, the second person, Jesus, has eternally been the Son. If he has not eternally been the Son, then the Father has not eternally been the Father. And those are the things by which they are chiefly known in their persons. Christ is eternally, not only divine, he is eternally the Son of God. And, and of course, the, so many of the ways of denigrating or minimizing the deity of Christ has to do, has to do with respect to the inferiority of a son to a father. But you know, the truth is a son is not, my sons are not inferior to me. My sons, almost all of my eternal existence, my sons are going to be my brothers. In fact, I, I dedicated a book to my sons one time, and, uh, and, I, I, and I did it to, to my son and my brother in Christ, Matthew Phillips or Jonathan Phillips. Uh, sonship does not, in fact, infer that you are in any way inferior. Now, uh, historically, Socinianism, also called Unitarianism, teaches that Christ is merely a man with no pre-existence. You know, Arianism was actually way relatively sophisticated, uh, which is why it keeps coming back. Arian agreed that Jesus had a, a, a pre-existence, and he made him a, a sort of God. He was the first of all creatures, and as close to being God as a creature can be without being God, but yet not God. Well, these are explicitly de- denied by the doctrine of the church based on the scriptures. Uh, he is of one substance and equal with the Father. That is 
Nicaea. Now, part of the controversy in the Council of Nicaea was between the word homoousios and homoousios. And as is usually the case, somebody says, we're going to, you know, we, you all, we got to stop arguing. Unity is the most important thing, which is not true. And so therefore we have to, we'll, we'll find a, we'll have a way of saying this that will satisfy both sides. And it will be homoousios. Home, uh, the, the oi means like. Uh, ousios is a Greek word for, um, for being, for substance, nature. And so homoi means that Jesus is like the Father. And when that was first proposed, they thought, you know, isn't it great? We've avoided a schism in the church, except for the Bible believers wouldn't accept it. They would not accept homoiousios. Why? Because Jesus is not like the Father. He is of home, not homoiousios. He is homoousios. They possess one and the same nature. And so that's the doctrine of the church. Now, one thing this rules out, I've been alluding to it, is eternal subordinationism. And if you're an internet theologian, you certainly have run across this, but it's actually been a bit of a big deal in the last six, seven years among Reformed-ish evangelicals. And uh, the argument is that Jesus Christ is he's, he's, he's God equally with the Father, but he is eternally subordinate to the Father. Um, and, uh, and the arguments are these, that, um, well, we know by analogy, a son is subordinate to the authority of a father, and since God calls himself father and the son son, therefore what is true in human relations must be true in, a, in divine relations. And they're talking about the eternal inter-Trinitarian Relationship. Now, first of all, we want to go, you know, there's actually a word for taking something of earth and defining God by it. That word is idolatry. Um, we actually don't want to make that maneuver. I, I, I'm sorry to say it's just the truth. The actual reason for this was to reinforce in the midst of our, our egalitarian cult, uh, 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 culture with feminism and challenge the biblical gender roles it actually came out by those who were trying to support the subordination of wives in marriage. And the argument was, you know, see, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing denigrating to a wife being subordinating herself to her husband, submitting, submitting to her husband, because Christ is eternally submissive to the Father. Well, first of all, that's not an argument, and, and they, they say it's, they're going from 1 Corinthians where Paul says, the head of Christ is God, the head of woman is man, but... And so they're, they're making that argument. Um, well, first of all, we don't need to commit a Trinitarian heresy in order to support the Bible's teaching of wives submit to husbands. The Bible just teaches it straight up. And if Christ is eternally subordinate to the Father, then they are not equal with respect to authority. In fact, that is explicitly said. I saw Owen Strand put a thing on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where he said the personal properties of the members of the Godhead are the Father begets and is begotten of none. This is the kind of the classical theological language. And the Son is begotten and submits to the Father's will in heaven. And I, I, my son, Matthew, is my source of Twitter uh, theology. He sends it to me and I go, you know, he would have been exiled for that statement from the fourth century. That is a grade A heresy 
Now, he's not trying to. It's just they're in a rabbit hole. They refuse to get out of it. But if the, if the son is eternally subordinate to the father, then with respect to authority, he is less than God. And actually, it was one of the arguments that Arius himself used. And in my dialogue with these guys, I've actually said to them, are you not aware that you're replicating one of the arguments of Arians, of the Arians at the Council of Nicaea? And, and some have said, well, we're sort of Arian. I'm like, brothers, repent right now. This is not like, you know, a difference in eschatological view. Uh, this is grade A, are you a Christian stuff? The other thing is, if the Son submits to the will of the Father, then there are two wills in the being of God. Oh, we're in deep trouble. And, of course, the Scripture is against all of this. Now, what's the biblical argument mainly for the subordination of the Son? Well, all that language in the Gospels of Jesus saying, I've come to do my Father's will. It's my meat and my drink. But what they're failing to recognize is every every last and single verse in the New Testament in which Jesus either says or is said to submit to the will of the Father, the context is the incarnation. It's in his mediatorial office as the God-man. Now, it is true that in his mediatorial office as the God-man, part of the, being the second Adam is he fulfills the covenant of works, and he, as, as the incarnate God-man, he is submissive to the Father, but not in their eternal relations. He is very God of very God, light, God of God, light of light. And there are not two... What, um, the implications of there being two distinct and separate wills within the Trinity, shall we say, are bad. Let's just leave it there. They're, they're, they're shattering to our conception of everything. So, no eternal subordination of the Son. Well, let me give you quickly some biblical proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ, for the deity of God the Son. And your neighborhood... Uh, Jehovah's Witness will try to make it out like the, our belief in the deity of Jesus hangs on one single thread or two verses, and they're going to attack those verses. Well, I dare I say far from it. First of all, we do have direct biblical teaching. John 1, 1 to 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and there's, they, they, try to do, they try to engage in a grammatical fallacy that's actually wrong. John 1, 1 and 2 specifically says that this Jesus, the Logos, the Word, is God. He is God. Paul in Romans 9, 5 calls him our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. There are, and I have some other verses there, there are numerous direct biblical statements ascribing deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just one. But there are also divine names ascribed to him. Psalm 45, verse 6 but your throne, O God, he says. And he's referring to the, to the, to the mediator. He's referring to the Messiah. And, he refer, and, of course, Jesus uses that verse to confound the Pharisees. Your throne, O God, he says. Um, you think of Isaiah 9, 6. To us a child, to us a child is given. To us a son is given, a child is born, other way around. Uh, and the government shall be in his shoulder. He shall be called mighty God. He shall be called mighty God. So, you know, in, in the Old Testament, to call something God that is not God is the first commandment. The promised Messiah, of course, Isaiah seven fourteen, he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, is called God by the Old Testament. 
Uh, there are divine properties attributed to the Son. Uh, Micah 5.2 speaks about his, he shall be from ancient of days. The, the eternity is, is ascribed to him. You think of Jesus in John 8.28 when he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. When before Abraham was, I am. Ego me. Ego me. Jesus is, stay, he, that of course is the, the, that's the Yahweh name given to Moses at the burning bush. And Jesus is speaking particularly about his eternal nature and being. Um, his providence, Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things. And so he is, as God the Father is sovereign, God the Son equally is sovereign. You know, you think of all his miracles, so many of his miracles not only require deity to do, but have the specific point of displaying his deity. Well, one of my favorite miracles is the, the stilling of the waves. He's on the, it's just the greatest stuff. And, and, he, and the winds and the waves obeyed. What's he revealing himself as? The creator. The Lord and creator. And, and at his word, the, 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 the winds obey. Um, this is a, a proof of deity. Uh, his redemptive work is done in such a way that he, as God, is redeeming his people, so on and so forth. So his works are... Uh, the, the works attributed to him are those of God. And then divine honor is given to the Son. When the Bible says that you're to trust in him as for salvation and to call him Lord, you know, when Peter said, Paul in Romans 10 particularly, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that's Yahweh in the Old Testament that he's translating as kurios in the New Testament. And he's calling Jesus the Lord by through faith in whom you will have eternal life. That is a claim to his deity. Um, he is uh, worshipped. Uh, I, I don't like to call him Doubting Thomas because he's Believing Thomas. And what does is, what is Believing Thomas do when Jesus shows him the wounds on his side and the marks on his hands? He says, my Lord and my God. And he worships him. And Jesus receives the worship. Uh, grace is invoked from him. My favorite benediction, now to him who loves us and forgives us of our sins by his blood. To him be glory and honor forever and dominion forever and ever. This is a biblical ascription of his deity. So I hope that's helpful to you in terms of why we, it's a short uh, take on the overwhelming biblical testimony to the deity of the Son. Now, the second topic we have is the incarnation then. So we have the deity of the Son. He who was eternally God the Son became man. I, in fact, I love that language of the night. It's, boy, it's very careful. He became man. He was God. And then he who was God eternally at a certain time became man. And this language in the confession in the fullness of time reflects a biblical language, of course. Galatians 4.4, 4. In, the, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. I love how Paul puts it one way. We are those on whom the ends of the ages have fallen. The biblical eschatology says that when Jesus came into the world, the latter times came. And we are, the last days is not, in fact, you know, a seven-year period during which, what's his name, Nikolai, you know, the left-behind novels, and you have all this stuff. 
We do believe, by the way, in an antichrist. We do believe in some things happening at the end, the Bible teaches. But the last days are the entire era inaugurated by the first come, by the coming of, of the Son of God. And the, the, the beginning of the end and the last days occur with God sending his Son. Now, you know, one of the annoying things I find today is the secularist attempt to no longer say A.D. and B.C. You encounter this. It's now B.C.E. and C.E., that's common era and before common era. And you want to ask him, what does that mean? What do you mean? What does it mean? Because the fact is, you're dating it by the birth of Jesus. And it's almost it's, it's, it's so typical of secularism and neo-paganism today. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a rebellion. It's a hard-hearted refusal to give Christ the glory and honor he deserves, but it makes no sense because you're still dating history. You yourself with your... I had a professor at Westminster who has since been dismissed because he's an apostate, who in, in class he would use BCE and, and BCE, and I refuse to do this. And he said to me, you know, Rick, when you're a scholar, you'll be expected to do it. Not if I'm a Christian. I am sorry. I'm not doing before common era uh, it's before Christ and Anno Domini. It's not, I don't want to make that big a deal of it, but it's ma- we've made a, sta- a statement. The way we date our years is saying what the Bible says. This is the great event that has determined and shaped all of history. Everything was leading up to it. Everything proceeds from it until the time when he comes. That is so, uh, please, no CE. What does it mean? What does common era mean? It means we refuse to glorify Jesus. Well, good luck with that, says David in Psalm 2. Sorry. Um, And God sent his son to accomplish his redemptive purpose. Now, the, the, the confession says he took upon himself man's nature. Now, that's very important. The baby, Jesus did not come into existence in the Bethlehem manger. The son of God did not begin in the Christmas story. He who eternally was God, is God, I am, he says. On that occasion, probably 4 B.C., you know, they got the the Gregorian calendars off by a little bit, about four to six years, but uh, he was born, and at that time, he who was eternally God then added to himself, he became man. Uh, he took upon himself man's nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. And so Jesus became a true human being who was actually born of the substance of his mother, Mary. Now, uh, this emphasizes the true humanity of Jesus. It is just as necessary for our Savior, the mediator. On the one hand, he must be very God of very God. He must also be very man of very man. If he's not a true human being, then we don't have a mediator. A mediator partakes of both and brings them together. And so the the manhood of Christ and, of course, the true manhood of Christ has been attacked. Probably the most significant heresy from the ancient church is called docetism. The Greek verb dakeo means to seem. And docetism says it seemed as if the Christ took on a human body, but he didn't actually do so. And, of course, you have all these Gnostic antimatter doctrines that are still, oh, Gnosticism is back in a major way in our popular culture. And so matter is bad, so he couldn't have actually, and and certainly he didn't die on a cross. And there's variations on the theme. But uh, 
No, no, he, he who is eternal God, God the Son, became man. And so he, he didn't cease to be God. He became both God and man. He became human. He who is the Son of God became man. Now, again, the true humanity of Christ is essential to his mediating work, just as his deity. Now, Hebrews 2 is going to talk about that a lot. He had to be made just like his brothers in order to make atonement for their sins. And I think Anselm in the 12th century maybe put it best. The, it was man who owed the debt, so he who paid it had to be man. But man could not pay the debt, and so he who was God became man, so the debt could be paid by one in the nature of one who owed it by one who also had the nature and was able to pay it. He, he came to die for our sins, and by the way, he, he added humanity so that he could die. So that he could die. Without humanity, Jesus could not have paid the price of our sins without that human nature. It is essential. It is, uh, by the way, Christ remains in his human body now. now. Now, that is fascinating. It means that wherever heaven is, and I, I, I want to be, I, I want to follow Calvin's advice. I want to walk on the handrails of scripture and stop. Because when you and I die, when our dear brother Al Wills died and we saw his body, and they did a lovely job with it. I was really blessed by that. His death means his spirit leaves the body. There's a separation of the spirit of the soul from the body. The body, as the confession says, still united to Christ, goes into the grave. The soul goes into heaven. But Jesus is in heaven with a body. He's in a human body, a glorified human body. Now, that to me, that's not, what does that mean? Is heaven a physical place now? Uh, Jesus is in a spatial dimension because he's a human being. Now, this becomes important during the Reformation. One of the most potent arguments Calvin made against the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, transubstantiation, and this was the doctrine for which the Puritans were burned, uh, Latimer, Ridley, and whatnot. Uh, Lady Jane Grey was beheaded. Transubstantiation says that when the priest says, hoc est corpus meum, and yes, that is the source of the expression, hocus, hocus pocus, uh, then the common elements become the body and the blood of Christ. And, and I, you see it where they, they bow before the wafer. There's a sincerity to it, but it's creepy. Uh, it's idolatrous. But, and, uh, and so what makes the Lord's Supper, the Mass, efficacious is that you are taking in, you're taking the divine into your body. Well, Calvin comes along and goes, well, to, to be our mediator, he has to be fully man and fully God. But if the humanity of Christ has, has taken on divine attributes, such as ubiquity, if when the priest says, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, in Latin, only works in Latin, well, until the current pope, now it works in English, but prior to Pope Francis, only worked in Latin. Um, the uh, uh, the physical body of Christ becomes ubiquitous, then he's no longer human. Follow the argument? He's not a man if his body can be eaten by you in Greenville and Philadelphia. And so it, Christ must retain his, his humanity eternally for us to have that surety the writer of Hebrews speaks about anyway. Um, now, Christ's human nature has all the essential properties of, human, of humanity. Again, everything that makes God God 
Jesus possesses in his deity. Everything that makes man man, he possesses in his, in his humanity. Jesus is human in every respect. Uh, and he has all the common infirmities of it. And so you get classic texts like John 4. Uh, the, Jesus at the, at the well in, in uh, Samaria with a Samaritan woman. And we read that Jesus was tired, and so he sat down. Now, what, what nature are we talking? It's his human nature. And so he got, he got thirsty. He got hungry. He got tired. He felt pain. When the nails were, were nailed into his hands, he, he, he suffered bodily. He felt emotional. You pick, you pick up the, the incredibly beautiful portrait of Jesus in the Gospels. It's that of, of true humanity in every respect, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, he is the new man. He does not partake of original sin. You know, Hebrew, Romans 5.12 or 5.13 calls Adam a type of the one to come. And Adam and, and the Lord Jesus Christ are two typological men. They're covenant heads. You are either in Adam or in Christ. And by virtue of two things, one, his eternal nature, because when Jesus was born, again, he didn't come into existence, a human nature was added to his divine nature. This is why he does not partake of original sin, of a corrupt nature. He's not born with the guilt or corruption of Adam. Moreover, this is part of what's involved with the conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, Jesus is not without sin because he was not born through sexual relations with his parents. In the Bible, there's nothing dirty about marital sex. In fact, I was talking about Jeremiah uh, last week, and it was celibacy was considered bizarre in the Old Testament world. There's nothing, biblically, there's nothing dirty about sex. So Jesus is not sinless because Mary was a virgin. No, it's because of the operations of the Holy Spirit in his, con- his conception, one of the chief points of which, well, I mean, it's beyond our reckoning how God is born, how the living and eternal God becomes a zygote, becomes a, 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 a little fetus in a woman. But one of the things with the Holy Spirit is it preserved him, not Mary, preserved him from original sin. And so Jesus is true humanity in every respect, yet without sin. Uh, he was, and so the, the, the New Testament is going to make so much of this, particularly Hebrews 4. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And so when you and I pray, when you pray, Lord, I'm really, te- I have this, I have this besetting sin, and I'm tempted, and, I, and I'm having, you are praying to someone who, who does, who knows what it's like to be tempted. Now, what he doesn't know what it's like is what it means to have a sinful nature. Well, he has knowledge of all things, but Jesus never had a sinful nature. He did, so you and I are different from him. My problem is I like sin. Your problem is that you like sin and you want to do it. Never did he want to do sin. He had nothing but a holy revolution of it. But he was bodily tempted. Uh, he, was, he was tempted emotionally. You think of Satan in the wilderness. And so he, he has experienced temptation, and yet he's done so without sin. Now this statement, Hebrews 2.18 Oh, no, go back to uh, Hebrews 4.15. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Now, there's a lot of bad and wrong teaching about that. And people will say, if you have a sin desire, 
then, then it's okay because Jesus was like you. This has been used about people struggling with same-sex attraction in the PCA. That's one of our matters of controversy, you know. And uh, it's actually been written that if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, Jesus also struggled with same-sex attraction because Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted without, yeah, as we are. Well, well, first of all, it's not what it means. Jesus didn't have any sin orientation of any kind. Uh, temptation, pyrozo, means trial. It's the outward, and for us it has an inward component for sure. But Christ did not have a sinful nature. And so this statement that he was tempted as we, just as we are does not mean that Jesus struggled with every filthy sin that you or I might struggle with. No, he was a holy person who uh, did not have any sinful inclinations. Uh, because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. But Jesus does know what it's like to be tempted. In fact, Jesus knows more than you and I know. People go, what does Jesus know? about being tempted. He, he didn't, well, see, he never gave in. <laughs> he knows more about it than we do. Uh, you and I break at a point where he never would have. Uh, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, so you can pray You can pray to him, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, have compassion on me. I'm under temptation, I'm suffering, I'm, I'm weak. And Jesus, God, the eternal God, in the infirmities of the flesh, yet without sin, he has suffered temptation, and we're to, we're, to, we're, to, we're to call upon him and to know that the Bible teaches us he has sympathy as a fellow human being who is, who's experienced that, that suffering. Now, of course, the New Testament also makes clear that he could not have made the atoning sacrifice for us if he had any sins of his own. First uh, Peter 1.19, he's a lamb without defect or stain. Hebrews 7, 26, he's holy, harmless, undefiled. And so Jesus is truly human in every respect, yet without sin. Now, here's the last question on this. I got one more point. Uh, is he really human then? I mean, he's really, so he's really not human because he's not, to, to, be a, to be human is to be a sinner. No, it's not. No, no, he's actually more human than we are, not less. Because righteousness is part of the image of God by which we were made. And the fact that Jesus does not share any of the original sin effects, he does not have any sinful desires, does not make him subhuman, it makes us subhuman in our fallen state. But, but be of good cheer. Our destiny in Christ is to be made fully human. And we will be in him. And we will be that glorious state to which he has now come, we will come. Uh, sinfulness, my friends, is not inherent to humanness. One more thing, the dual natures of Christ. And this is kind of where a lot of the... Now we're moved to the 5th century. The Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, 431, 451. And here's the question. So you've got, you've got an eternal person, who is God the Son. Now, reflecting on the scriptures, the early church very helpfully developed some conventions. You have the nature of Christ, usios, and you have the person of Christ, Hypostasis. That's just the, and to a certain extent, they just said, "Look, we're going to. This one's going to be that. That one's going to be that. Why? Be quiet, because we we got. It's got to be something. It's going to be standard terminology. Usios means his being nature. You know, hypostasis means and prosopone in Latin means uh, or in Greek means uh, his his person. 
And so you have one divine nature in the Trinity. You have three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, let's talk about you have this, the second person of the Godhead who possesses a divine nature. He then adds a nature to his person when he becomes man, when he takes upon himself humanity. And so that's the teaching. Uh, and, and, and this took a whole century to work out. And, and they were smart, godly people. Uh, Jesus Christ is one person. It's not a split-split personality. No matter what he's doing, it's the one Jesus Christ. Now, Nestorianism taught, uh, teaches and teaches still that there's two persons. And so there's, he has, he's like a split personality. They wouldn't put it that way, but that, we might think of it that way. There's two persons in there, and they're different persons. One's divine, one's human. Uh, in fact, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was an Iranian Christian who was in prison, and I had you all praying for him for like six months. We prayed for this guy to get out of jail. He gets out of jail, I learned he's an historian. I'm like, oh, I've had the church praying for a heretic, sorry. Uh, <laughs> stop praying for, that, for the apostate. Because um, what happened when they were exiled from the Greco-Roman culture, they just went to East. And there's always been a, there was a huge Nestorian influence in China. When Marco Polo got to China in Cathay, there was a Nestorian church there. The Mongols had a, had a Nestorian problem. Um, no, there is one person with two natures. So, and the, the, there's one person of Jesus Christ. You, when you saw Jesus, that is Jesus. There's one person, but that person has a human nature and he has a divine nature. Two distinct natures. Now, Eutyches in the 5th century goes, Nestorius is a heretic. And it's not two persons, two natures. It's one person, one nature. And he argued that one person can't have two natures. And so you kind of have a mixture of the two. And, of course, the humanity basically gets subsumed in the deity. But but let's look at John 4 again. Because what we do is... We have one Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to ascribe different things he does to the respective nature. John 4, Jesus, he must go through Samaria, and he's thirsty. Which nature is that? Human. He's tired. It's his human nature. Give to me to drink is human nature. And then he tells her everything he knew about her life, having never met her before. Divine nature. And so one person with two natures, and we can ascribe different activities to the respective natures. Each, has, each nature has their respective property, divine or human. Uh, the human now, here's what we're going to say. There's a reason, though, why Jesus is called the Son of God. You say, well, is there a precedence given in the Scriptures to one nature over the other? And the answer is yes. He is the Son of God. By the way, Son of Man is not a term that describes his human nature. You keep hearing that. Son of God means he's got a divine nature. Son of Man means he's got a human nature. That is not what Son of Man means. That's a whole Daniel 7, Ezekiel thing. It's another way of his divine. uh, It has to do with his uh, mediatorial office. Uh, He who was eternally divine added to that divine nature another nature which was human. And at a certain point in time, he who was always divine also became human. And that human nature, was, was it originated attached to his person. Robert Shaw saying here, 
The human nature of Christ from its first formation was united to and subsisted in the person of the Son of God. And so that the human nature of Christ doesn't have its own existence. It has always been something that he, there is one person, the second person of the Godhead, and he, that person, took up human nature and, and joined it to himself. That's the way we have to think about it. Um, and, and what we do is the acts of the qualities of each, as I just did, of each nature are referred to one person, and they are inseparably joined together. Listen to Robert Shaw. To represent our Savior as having a human person distinct from his Godhead, that would be the two persons, two natures rule, is to divest his obedience and sufferings of their inherent value. When the man Jesus suffered in his body on the cross, the person suffered. I once heard a beloved Reformed theologian say we shouldn't sing uh, and can it be anymore. Because he said, you cannot say that thou, my God, has died for me because our God did not die for us. Our, 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 it, was, it, was, it was Christ in his human nature that died for us. And I was sitting next to Robert Godfrey, uh, the great church historian from Westminster West, and, and the, the speaker whose name I will not say because you'll be horrified, and I don't want you to attach that name to his eminent ministry. Uh, he said, uh, uh, we got, some of you are going to accuse me of some heresy. What's that heresy? And Godfrey goes, it's Nestorianism. <laughs> like, there we go. Listen to the man. Uh, no, no, it is precisely because the Son of God died for you. <coughs> he died in his human nature, <coughs> but he died. And what he did in his human nature, he did for me. He did for you. And so everything performed in and by and via, <coughs> I'll work through my voice with this. Uh, this is why the deacons give me water on Sunday mornings. Everything his human nature accomplished was accomplished by the person who is the God. Does that make sense? Who is the God-man. He is the God-man. The last thing we're going to say about the... the, Now, we call it the the hypostatic union means one person with two natures. Jonathan, I ask seminary students when they come for for exams committee, what is the hypostatic union? You cannot believe how many blank stares I get. And that goes poorly. Uh, So, uh, if you want to be uh, passed in Calvary Presbytery, you need to know what the hypostatic union is. Uh, And this is just language that has been developed because it protects from error. This is actually language from the Council of Chalcedon, that 451, that makes its way into the Westminster Confession. There is no conversion between the two natures. Each nature retains its proper properties. Our Lord Jesus Christ remains one a fully human right now, and he will eternally. That humanity does not convert into something else because it is joined to a person who is also divine. That humanity remains human. It's not a composition, Eutyches. It's not an, it's not an alloy. It doesn't become a divine human thing, and inevitably the humanity gets lost in the de- deity. There's no conversion of the natures. There's no composition, and kind of as a catch-all, There's no confusion between the two. And so you have Paul saying that in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. These are the kind of verses that the early church fathers were looking at and and wrestling with. But in Christ, all the fullness of deity, very God of very God, dwells in humanity. That's the miracle 
of the incarnation, the greatest fact ever. If someone says to you, what do you Christians believe? A good answer is, we believe that God became a man while remaining God, and he lived in this world, and he died for our sins. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Father in heaven, we exalt you for the mystery of the, of the hypostatic union. And Lord, it makes sense, but there's things beyond our conception, namely the hows. But Father, we know the why. The why is that you love us. And you had a purpose in eternity to glorify yourself through your grace in our redemption through your Son. And we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, he who was, is very God of very God from all eternity. But he did not... He he was not proud, as Paul says in Philippians. He humbled himself, and he became a man. And all the humility that that involved, even apparent shame upon him, and he did it that he would die for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the hypostatic union, particularly because of what it means to the atonement, that our Lord Jesus did this to know us, to be with us, to, to draw us to you, to, to show us you in, in a human face, but then to, to make the sacrifice that we would be forgiven of our sins. For this, we will spend eternity giving you thanks, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.